The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It was the summer of 1969. President Nixon has begun to withdraw troops out of Vietnam. Neil Armstrong becomes the first man to walk on the moon as part of the Apollo 11 landing. And the week before Woodstock brought 400,000 free-loving hippies to a farm in upstate New York and changed the course of rock and roll and music festivals forever, Charles Manson convinces four members of his new family to brutally kill five people in the Topanga Canyon home of director Roman Polanski, including his eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife, rising star Sharon Tate. The next night, the Manson family will strike again, killing another couple in nearby Los Feliz. By December 8, 1969, Charles Manson will be charged with first-degree murder and seven killings, even though no one died at his hand. How did a career criminal, fresh out of prison, without even a high school education, convince numerous young middle-class women with no prior criminal records to not only abandon their lives and follow him up and down the California coast, but to also brutally stab strangers to death at his command? Where does a person like that come from? What type of childhood creates such a unique and terrible force of nature? What kind of dude uh, gets people to murder, uh, people to, to start a race war in his insane and hilarious helter-skelter vision? Find out all this and more in what has been my personal favorite Time Suck so far. You're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Wow, I got a big one for everybody today. Spent a lot of time on this baby and happy to do so. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of starting to figure this podcast out. You know, I got, I got to get a jump on the research so I don't feel rushed to throw out a half-ready episode come Monday. I'm trying to get, you know, a fair amount of these kind of in the can so I can take my time with ones as needed. You know, and I, and I, and I did need a jump on this one, and I'm glad I got it. I, I lost a couple days out on the road, holed up in a hotel, listening to Manson music, watching Manson interviews, uh, Manson documentaries, reading a lot of articles about this uh, diminutive little psychopath. And before I get into it, uh, uh, welcome to the show. And a little house cleaning. 
I want to I want to comment real quick on last week's episode and kind of the week before. I just I want to apologize for not putting the time I needed to to make those episodes what I feel like they could have been. And I got a lot of positive comments from you guys, and I, and I feel very appreciative, but I just don't feel like they were as entertaining as they needed to be. I felt like I meandered a lot. I felt like, um, and I knew it going in. I was like, you know, whatever. I'll have a lot of interesting facts to share. Who cares that I don't have my brain around what the narrative of this episode is supposed to be? And that's, and that's bullshit, uh, you know? You guys take your time to listen to this, and, um, and I want it to be worth it. I want it to be... You know, something that's not just like a podcast you like, but your favorite podcast. I want to put something out there in the world that is uh, just meaningful. I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of the uh, driving artistic goal of my life is to, to do shit that's going to stand up to a little test of time and, and that people can be, you know, uh, proud of or weird way that they're a part of. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. Um, but yeah, yeah. And I just, uh, I didn't feel like the last couple uh, did that. I'm still getting a handle on, on just trying to figure out you know, how to make this podcast as good as it can be. I, I, I'm so glad that you guys have been so nice on iTunes and everywhere else. And, and I don't feel like we've reached near the potential of what this thing can be. Cause I just, I want it to be really informative. I want it to be really funny. And I just want it to be really, really honest because, uh, there's so much bullshit in the world, so much bullshit. And it's like, you know, we bullshit each other in friendships. We bullshit each other in relationships at work. And, and I just want this to be a place where you can come and you can hear one person's 100,000% unfiltered, unfiltered, I can't fucking talk, I'm an idiot, <laughs> I'm trying to say something important, and I fuck it up, uh, unfiltered, unfiltered perspective on something, you know, and, and I did that, uh, you know, as best I could the last few weeks, but it was without the proper preparation, and, uh, and and I got and I did get you know uh, uh, one email uh, so far uh, you know it just came out as I'm recording this the the Walmart episode but you know with some constructive criticism and and I I really appreciate it. this is I'm I'm gonna read a quick little email from part of it an excerpt from Charlie McKaylee in Utah and just before if you're listening Charlie which I think you are uh, no this is this is gonna be this is nice I am not upset at all and 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 you sent me some really nice emails and one was i really do love your comedy and your podcast with the last podcast you said how walmart needs to raise its pay i see your side i respectfully disagree with your premise that the minimum wage should be raised you should do some research on what that would do to smaller companies like mine instead of only talking about larger companies maybe do a podcast on how this country's politicians have shit on small businesses for decades now i pay 30 37% in business tax wow Dude, that's crazy. 37% in business tax, 20% in materials, and roughly 3% on miscellaneous. Raising the minimum wage would destroy small businesses. I know this is coming off like I'm saying fuck you. I swear I'm not. I'm not some pussy that can't listen to someone I can disagree with. I love that. Uh, it would take me a lot to stop listening to your podcast or comedy. And then, <laughs> and then Charlie followed up uh, with an apology email, which he didn't need to do. Uh, he didn't need to do that, Charlie, but it titled uh, I'm a douche, which made me laugh really hard. But you're not a douche at all, Charlie. I love it when you guys disagree with me so much because I learn as much from your guys' suggestions as, you know, you may learn from these podcasts. I love that it's reciprocal, and I love constructive criticism. I love it so much, you know, because I just, uh, you know, another kind of goal in my life is to to improve. I want to always improve my comedy and, and make it hopefully smarter and funnier, and I, and I want to improve this podcast, you know, uh, each and every week if possible. And this is the kind of shit that does it. You're right, man. You are 100% right. I, I did not research that, and I should have. And that's what I was referring to earlier. And, and I knew that before this email came in. It was a huge fucking topic that I didn't have my brain around, uh, and I should have taken – I should have sat on it for a few months. And I should have went on to other topics and came back to it and added to it and added to it until it was, it was totally ready like today's topic is, by the way. 
very excited. And uh, so I apologize to you. And uh, yeah, and, and just for the record, you know, uh, the what I was trying to do with the Walmart thing is not point out that that small businesses are are bad. I'm really not, and I and I don't know. the The main thrust of what I was trying to get out there is that a corporation that has you know billions and billions and billions in profits each and every year should kick some back to the people you know making that company great. The, you know, the, the bottom tier of employees. I just hate how, man, uh, if history shows us one thing, it's that uh, the poor and the voiceless get motherfucked every goddamn generation. And and just, uh, you know, insanely greedy, wealthy people who just pat themselves on the back like they deserve it all. Fuck you. That's the, that, that is enemy number one of the world. You know, the, that's uh, the exploiter, the one holding the little man down. So that's what I was just trying to get at. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Charlie, and I appreciate that. And you are absolutely not a douche. You're, you are awesome. Uh, thank you for paying so much attention. And, and today, let's get into this shit. Today's Time Suck uh, was requested by two separate Time Suckers. We got Jeff uh, Patik. Hopefully I'm saying that right. P-A-T-Y-K. Uh, he had asked for a Manson episode. Uh, he emailed me an admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Appreciate all the emails there. And Horton Alfredo hit me up on Twitter uh, January 3rd, pointing out that Manson's in the hospital. Some kind of serious medical condition. Turns out very vague. Uh, I couldn't find any info uh, as to what exact type of medical condition he's suffering from uh, at this point uh, of the recording. Uh, the, like the prison won't release it. And this is the, actually the first topic uh, my wife suggested I research earlier, uh, which explains why I'm with her. She loves crazy shit. Uh, so thanks everyone for pushing me on this episode. I uh, didn't realize how little I knew about Charles Manson until I, until I dug in this, I had always thought of Charles Manson as just like, kind of like almost like a, a weird quasi celebrity, like this pop culture reference where it's like, you know, like, you know, Marilyn Manson, that band, you know, which I like a lot of their songs, you know, took a uh, part of their name from Charles Manson. He's like this, this symbol of just, you know, uh, cartoonish evil. Or, you know, uh, a fuck you to the system. You know, he just, uh, he just looks like a, an insane homeless guy with a swastika carved into his forehead. And, and whenever I'd seen interviews, I didn't really listen to what he was saying. I just uh, was amused by his kind of psychobabble. You know, he talks in this, like, crazy prison slang and, like, this weird beatnik-y, like an evil beatnik-y kind of vibe when you, when you watch interviews of the dude talk. And I just thought he was a fucking nut. And I, and I knew... He had to do with murders, uh, you know, in, in the 60s or 70s. I knew, I didn't know the exact, I knew the name Sharon Tate. I knew, like, Roman Polanski, um, who I could do a whole episode on that fucking pedophile. Uh, if you don't know about that, uh, Roman Polanski, you know, uh, shortly after all this, has been hiding out of the country, still making movies, even though he uh, sodomized a 13-year-old motherfucker. Uh, but, he, but he's an artist. He's an artist. So you know what? Uh, if the gas station attendant does that, uh, you know, he's the scourge of the earth. But if he's Roman Polanski, he can still be, uh, you know, uh, heralded by the, you know, the prestigious actors and actresses, you know, of the day and, you know, the, the Academy, uh, the Academy Awards. You know what? You get to you get to put your wiener, I guess, in a 13 year old's butt if you uh, if you're a good enough director. That's what we learned from Roman Polanski. Fuck that guy. and Fuck his movies. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to get I'm not going to get distracted by, by uh, old Polanski. But anyway, that's why I thought about Manson. Didn't know much. And, uh, oh, my God, I had so much fun in a, in a dark, morbid way researching this guy because he, what a fascinating life. Uh, and, and, and what a 
crazy, I mean, very dark, but, but a crazy amount of life he crammed into what very little time he didn't spend in prison. Uh, I did not know about his past before, before the, you know, the summer of 69 and the Manson family murders. So to get a feel for Manson, we got to go back to the beginning. We got we to get to know this guy from birth so you can see what creates, what conditions uh, a fucking very unique monster, very different than like a Bundy or a Gacy, you know, a, a serial killer. He is a unique animal, about as unique as they come. So this is the first of two in this episode, Time Suck Timelines. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. November 12th, 1934. Charles Manson is born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, Cincinnati! Giving us Manson. Well played. Uh, to single mother, uh, 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox. His father, uh, uh, you know, was like a brief fling Kathleen had who left the picture long before uh, Charlie was ever born. I don't know, I'm fucking calling him Charlie now. You know, like, we're, <laughs> we're old pals. Uh, he's never, he, he uh, but yeah, anyway, it, it, he was a dude named Colonel Scott. I guess his first name was Colonel. That's kind of weird. Colonel Scott sounds so much like Colonel Sanders. I just picture this lady fucking Colonel Sanders <laughs> and a baby coming out with a swastika on her forehead. But anyway, uh, Colonel Scott, Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, this guy would die by 1954, um, never acknowledging his son. And around the time of the birth, Charles Manson, uh, uh, of Charles Manson, Kathleen briefly married William Manson. That's how he got his last name. So then 1939 to 1944, uh, Kathleen and her brother serve a five-year prison sentence for the armed robbery of a West Virginia gas station. And this is such a hillbilly crime. Uh, they didn't even, they didn't even, I think they were armed with a bottle. It was like technically considered a weapon. Like they pretended like they had a gun. It was like it was like the equivalent of like the finger in your pocket. Like stick them up, and you know it turns out you got a, just your hand in there. Like it was just such a backwoods fucking hillbilly West Virginia crime. And but they go to prison for five years. And little Charlie, uh, he goes to live a few miles from the prison with some relatives. His aunt Jenna, Uncle Bill, good old Uncle Bill, cousin Joanne. A lot of a lot of uh, early tw- mid twentieth century. You know, Joanne, I don't know. I was going to say West Virginia names, whatever. But who else? But they did seem like some solid West Virginia backwoods fucking hill folk. Uh, Uncle Bill supposedly sent little Charlie, who was always small for his age, to his first day of school. So think about this kid. First day of school. He's the tiniest kid in class. He's a very small little guy. Sent him to school, uh, dressed up as a girl. So he's going to school, dressed up as a girl. Uh, His mom's in prison. His dad is nowhere in sight. Uh, and he did this, was sent him to prison or sent him to school like this. Cause he thought he was a sissy. <laughs> he wanted to toughen him up. It's like the old Johnny Cash, you know, uh, boy called Sue kind of, kind of technique, I guess. Well, not surprisingly, Charlie come home crying, uh, uh about how, you know, a kid is, uh, hitting him. Well, the same uncle that dressed him up like a girl apparently slapped Charlie across the fucking ear so hard he couldn't hear for several days, told him to find that bully who was picking on him when he went back to school the next day and do not come home until that kid's either bleeding or on the ground. That's a quote, bleeding or on the ground. Oh, man, not the best situation for a boy, you know, between the ages of five and ten. Again, no dad, mom was in prison, (laughs) got psychotic hillbillies. Uh, telling you how the world's supposed to work. You're getting your ass beat at school. You're the tiniest kid in class. So that's, that's where we start. That's where we start with Charles. 1944 to 47, Manson is back and forth between living with his mom, being abandoned by his mom, living on his own, being abandoned by his mom again, uh, juvenile detention centers, 
Even by like teen mom standards, by all accounts, Kathleen was a terrible mother. There's all kinds of stories about how she may have been an on-again, off-again prostitute, you know, uh, like stories like she would, you know, send him to the neighbors for like an hour when, her, you know, her John would come over, and uh, she'd leave Charlie with the family, you know, take off to live with some new man, just to like, completely abandon him, go to a, you know, neighboring state like Indiana or somewhere, and then when that relationship inevitably didn't work out, because she was a fucking train wreck of a person, she'd come back, take Charlie back, you know, abandon him again. Stories about like working like uh, stuff like as a dive at a dive bar as a bartender, while Charlie watched himself in the apartment above the bar. I mean, undoubtedly bringing dudes home here and there after shifts. Uh, again, been in prison, you know, for armed robbery, armed robbery already. So, let's just say she had a very relaxed moral code, uh, very relaxed maternal instincts, i.e., none. Um, yeah, this is the worst one from that era. According to Manson, at one point she, she sold Charles to a waitress she worked with for a pitcher of beer, stayed with the waitress, who I imagine just felt sorry for the kid, for a few days until an uncle came and picked him up. So, so there, again, you know, uh, mom gets out of prison. Now you're this little kid, you know, what, 10, 11, 12, you're getting traded for fucking beer pitchers. That's going to build up a, a, a little uh, hatred towards women, I would, I would say. In 1947, Kathleen tried to place 13-year-old Charlie in foster care. Wanted to just give him to... That is so fucked at 13. I mean, oh my God. Like, I get it. You know, I'm really trying not to be judgmental. Where it's like, let's say you're a teen mom and you got a baby. It's like, man, and you, and you think, okay, this, this they're going to have a better life. And, and then, you know, a foster family raises them. I get that. I really, really, truly do. But when the kid is 13, figure it the fuck out, you monster. Oh, man, you're forming your identity? And your mom's like, get out of here, shithead. Well, she couldn't get the to play, court to place him in foster care. You know, it's probably because he's too old, you know. And, and he goes to the Jabalt School for Boys in Terre Haute. Ten months later, he runs away to find his mom, does find her, and now she rejects him for the rest of his childhood. Uh, and again, he's 13. And... Oh my God! You know the more and the more I would read about uh, her, Kathleen, the more I want you know her to be in. Well, she's dead now, <laughs> but I wanted her to be in prison. You know, after the summer of '69 for the rest of her life as well too, because she she made this dude, and you know, and the dad who abandoned it. To be fair to her, you know, he's equally responsible for just not fucking being there at all. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I would just I don't understand. I would I would kill for my kids. Uh, I would. I mean, I've, I've, not, I've not been the best human being, you know, in certain ways. I've made mistakes like everybody else. But, man, the kids, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine abandoning them. Ah, so anyway, may your body rest in anguish there, Kathleen. So let's go later to 1947. Oh, and by the way, Kathleen did not, it's not like she, her backstory was terrible. She was raised in a, you know, uptight religious household, as was most of the fucking world at that time. But no stories ever of, like, abuse or anything uh, with her. She just seemed like a piece of shit. Later, 1947, 13-year-old Manson commits a string of burglaries. The crime of, again, uses the money to rent himself a room. Again, at 13, my son's just turning 11. I can't imagine living on your own. He's quickly caught, sent to an Indianapolis juvenile detention center, uh, escapes after just one day, quickly recaptured, commits more burglaries, and, and then back and forth he goes. Now, this, is, this begins the, the long period of like criminal incarceration of his life. And he's already been, you know, just bounced around and staying in different places. 1949, 15-year-old Manson is sent to Father Flanagan's Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska, where, incredibly, he was not molested. I think that's miraculous, considering he spent time in a center uh, with the words father, boys, and town 
all in the title. That sounds like the Mustang Ranch for, for pedophiles, for pederasts, which I, I randomly learned doing some other research. That's a, that's a, uh, a pedophile who only likes boys, I guess, uh, a pederast. But, uh, yeah, unbelievably, he was not molested there. I mean, it truly sounds like a, like a South Park kind of, uh, you know, like a name they would give to a place where, like, every kid gets fingered. Like, like Father Flanagan's boy's dad. It sounds like Father Fingerbanger's boy's dad. It sounds horrible. Ah, 1949, four days after being placed in Boys Town, Manson escapes, goes back to burglaries, commits his first armed robberies, and ends up in the Indiana Boys' School, where he would later claim he was beaten and raped. How much does that suck? You escape from Father Flanagan's Boys Town, where you're not raped, only to end up in Indiana Boys School where you are. I mean, the kid didn't have a chance. Again, not, not saying anything he did later was justified, but my God. Uh, it, yeah, I, I can't imagine that kind of childhood. 1951, Manson has escaped from the Indiana Boys. But <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm just, uh, he's, uh, he escaped from the Indiana Boys butt rape palace. <laughs> I actually wrote that on my notes. I'm an idiot. And heads towards California in a stolen car, robbing gas stations along the way. And it's caught in Utah and then sent to the Washington, D.C. National Training uh, School for Boys. A lot of places for boys. He just sent to one boy's place after another. What? Not the smartest criminal. It's like, let's, uh, let's steal a car. And then um, let's just, uh, in order to pay for the gas in the way, let's just rob every gas station we encounter. No one will, no one will ever trace our, our path that way. And our, <laughs> and our stolen car with the stolen light, you know, with the license plate, the good ideas, and just like creating witnesses at every place we stop of more crimes. So it's hard to say if he was just really, really bad at committing crimes uh, at this point, or if he just like robbed so many fucking places that even though maybe his batting average was high for pulling off, you know, heists and such, he just he still got caught all the time. Just the volume of crimes he was committing. And then he, he bounces around, getting transferred from one penal institution to another, bouncing around the country, finally gets out. 1954, at the age of 20, what does he do? Finds mama. Yeah, sweet mama Kathleen. Oh, that guiding light. And he finds her back in West Virginia, you know, goes to her for sound moral guidance. I'm sure she... I'm sure, I would love to just, just uh, be a fly in the wall of what kind of life lesson she's given Charles. You just everyone's trying to get you, Charles. You just gotta fucking take what's yours. I don't know. January 1955, uh, 20-year-old Manson marries 17-year-old Rosalie Jean Willis in McMechan, West Virginia. Cause that's as you do in West Virginia in the 50s. You marry 17-year-olds. It's probably there's probably a bylaw. That you had to with that or something. But uh, almost immediately gets her pregnant. Again, as you do in the West Virginia. And, uh, uh, yeah, they have no decent adult looking out for them. Charles works odd jobs. And imagine this. Steal stuff. Start stealing cars. Burglarizes to pay the bills. Well, already by 1956, <laughs> the very following year, he's back in jail. A series of car thefts and parole violations have landed him three years in federal prison in San Pedro, California. Uh, Rosalie and Mom head out to L.A. and visit him in prison, and Rosalie gives birth to little Charlie Manson Jr., a son who, following his own mother's example, Charles would soon completely abandon. Uh, and the dude loved crime, man. From 1951 to 1967, he was arrested on everything, from, like, mail theft, uh, forgery, burglary, Several times on running prostitutes. 
Uh, and again, so that, that that's kind of an important note for what's going to happen later. Uh, the dude is, you know, becoming a professional manipulator of women. 1957, Charles' mom informs him that Rosalie is living with another man. Charles tries to escape. He's going to find his woman by stealing a car right before he has a parole hearing because he's a criminal goddamn genius. Uh, he's given five years probation. Rosalie files for divorce. Well, that's good for Rosalie. Uh, 1958, Charles and Rosalie are officially divorced, and rather than be a dad again, uh, Charles decides to pimp one 16-year-old girl and live off the money of the parents of another young girl, uh, among other you know, academic scholarly endeavors. And in 1959, he, he marries a young prostitute he's been pimping. Candy Stevens has another son, Charles Luther Man- Manson, so we get our third Charles Manson. He also abandons uh, this kid when he goes back to prison. Uh, what, what happened, if you're curious, to those other two Charles Mansons? Well, the first killed himself in 1993. Not shocked, just based on, you know, uh, being abandoned. I mean, how much did that suck for your self-esteem? When the fucking swastika dude, the fucking lunatic, like when he is like, nah, and you're not good enough for me to raise you. Like, Jesus, one thing to be abandoned by your dad, but to be abandoned by Charles Manson. Oh, that sucks. And uh, the other one's whereabouts are totally unknown, which, you know, uh, good for the mom on that one for, like, not giving into any media pressure to, to I mean, that's, that's social suicide, you know, if you let people know that your son's father is Charles Manson. 1960, Manson is apprehended for uh, suspicion of violation of the Mann Act, which is uh, when they would, you know, transport women or underage girls across state lines for prostitution, other lewd acts. Fancy charged with some fraud bullshit, uh, and uh, goes back to prison for probation violation. 1961, he's transported from Southern California uh, penal system to McNeil Island Prison up in Washington State in the Puget Sound. His mom, uh, too little too late, but she moves up to Seattle to be close to him, you know. Uh, but I guess better than abandoning him again, as the, as the new wife does. She'll divorce Charles in 1963 while he's still in prison. Um, and 1961's important. It's a pivotal year for Charles. Because that's when he learns to play guitar and what a backstory this guy has. From another inmate, Alvin Creepy Carpus. And that's his real nickname. I didn't add the creepy. Uh, it was apparently given to this guy for his sinister smile. Creepy Carpus was a Canadian-born uh, Lithuanian gangster who was one of uh, three leaders of the Barker Carpus gang of the 1930s, one of only four men to ever be given the title of public enemy number one by the FBI. The other three being people you've probably heard of, John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Babyface Nelson. So Creepy Carpus was in there, too. All killed. All, all three of the other ones killed before being captured. Maybe that's why they became more infamous uh, in death. Creepy Carpus, uh, also, uh, you know, somewhat famous, I guess, for he spent the more time in Alcatraz than any other prisoner, 26 years. Well, old Creepy Carpus, who did get released in 1969, had a couple of uh, successful book tours in Canada about his earlier criminal exploits. Eventually died living in Spain. Old, old Creepy could play a mean guitar, and he taught Charlie how to play. Uh, said Charlie picked it up quick, had a good voice. This musical talent would pave the way for uh, the Manson family a little bit later. And by the way, you can listen to some Charles Manson songs on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, there's one album that comes up on each if you just search his name. Uh, YouTube videos as well. Not, not actually bad. Not actually bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this out with a little Charles Manson at the very end of this episode. Uh, kind of the song he was, he was most uh, known for, uh, Look at Your Game Girl. Um, I think that's uh, the one I remember a little bit later that uh, Guns N' Roses actually covered on that uh, what is it, a spaghetti incident or whatever the fuck that weird B-side album was of theirs. Anyway, 66-67, Manson transferred back down to Terminal Island Prison in San Pedro for his eventual release on March 21st, 1967. By the time he got out, he'd spent more than half of his 32 years incarcerated. 
allegedly was so used to living in prison, he actually uh, requested to stay when initially granted his release. Oh, in hindsight, should have granted him that request. Should have fucking kept him in there. Shit's going to get real weird the next couple years. Uh, April 1967, within a few weeks of his release from prison, Charles has headed to San Francisco. He's not wasted time, man. He started the formation of what would become the Manson family, uh, meeting Berkeley librarian Mary Bruner, the sexy librarian, who clearly has a thing for bad boys. 23-year-old Manson, uh, or the 23-year-old lets Manson uh, move in with her, and I'm guessing have an insane amount of, you know, uh, of hippie meets dude who's been in prison for a long time free love sex. Charles uh, also may have gotten Mary Bruner pregnant because she had a son, uh, Valentine Michael, what a hippie name, in April 1968. Uh, but with the whole kind of free love thing, no paternity test, uh, Charles has never been confirmed as the dad, but you know, probably, probably at least has three kids. May 1967, barely a month into his living with Mary, this, this dude, he does have some fucking game, uh, picks up 18-year-old Lynette Squeaky Fromm, convinces Mary to let Lynette move in with them, what a fucking horny dude, man. He's fresh out of prison. And again, we're talking about game. The guy has no employment prospects. He's five foot two. He's scrawny. Uh, he already looks like a fucking uh, homeless lunatic. <laughs> and he's got two young hot chicks. And he's just getting started. And out hitchhiking that summer, he meets a preacher. Check this story. This is, this is the craziest um, him picking up a girl. Talk about charisma this guy had in, in, a, in a cult leader you know, type way. Out, he's out hitchhiking the summer of 67. He meets up a preacher, Dean Morehouse, who ends up inviting him home for dinner and uh, even give Charlie, uh, gives him a, a piano uh, because he, you know, appreciates the guy's musical talent. Apparently, you know, spun some tale about, you know, if only he had these opportunities, he could be a musician. He does have musical aspirations, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Um, he take, Charles takes the piano. He ends up trading it for a, a Volkswagen micro bus. That's, that's, a, that's a wizard level hippie move right there. Someone gives you a free piano, you fucking exchange it for a micro bus. Goddamn. And as if conning this dude out of a piano isn't enough, check this shit out. He sweet-talks the preacher's 16-year-old daughter into running off with him. Dean the preacher vows to kill Charles Manson. Charles then meets up with Dean, calms him down, uh, gets him to drop LSD, stays with him and his wife uh, in, in the house for a few weeks, long enough for the preacher's wife to get sick of his shit and leave. Uh, the dude doesn't kick Charles out at this point. I mean, what, a, what a charismatic motherfucker, man. Uh, you know, I, I know it's messed up, but a little bit of applause. A little bit of applause. Okay. A little bit of insight into uh, how this dude got people to kill for him. Dude could sell portraits to the blind. Uh, to blind people who hate art. I don't, Jesus Christ. Summer 67. More troubled young girls follow. 19-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel and 20-year-old Susan Atkins, who Manson meets in the Haight-Ashbury district uh, while he's playing guitar. They're joining the family now. Fall of 67. Charles packs the ladies into a, a Volkswagen uh, microbus, you know, the fucking the piano bus, moves to L.A., six months out of the joint. Six months! And, and he has a bus of hot, he has a bus of hot young chicks who have dedicated their lives to him. He tries to make connections in the music world. He's offering his girls as bait to dudes. Uh, like, he's pimping these girls out, essentially. He thinks, uh, uh, they could, you know, help him get some music contacts. The family is growing they wander around L.A. and Topanga, scrounging food from dumpsters when money gets tight. I mean, just full-on hippie cult mode. Charlie, uh, he gets his first record company audition, three-hour session. Doesn't get signed, makes more connections. And uh, March 1968, a couple of the Manson family girls meet Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who picks them up, uh, picks them up hitchhiking on the Sunset Strip. Charlie and the girls move in with Dennis. 
and meet L.A. scenesters like producer, big uh, record exec, Terry Melcher. Summer 1968, Charlie does more studio sessions now uh, through his Beach Boys connections, hoping for a record deal with the Beach Boys label. Brian Wilson apparently isn't impressed. Thank God. Uh, and the Manson family, uh, could you imagine what this guy would have done if he would have been given some fame. Uh, who knows how many more people he would have killed. I don't know. Or maybe he would have been happy. I don't know. Maybe it would have been better. But anyway, uh, Brian Wilson's not impressed. And the Manson family, now a couple of dozen, they moved to Spawn Ranch because they've been actually living uh, <laughs> along with the Beach Boys. The Manson family was living with the Beach Boys for a while. But they moved to Spawn Ranch in summer 1968, a movie set owned by the elderly George Spawn, uh, whose sex sessions with uh, Squeaky Fromm is, is what gave her the nickname Squeaky. Gross. Uh, the more I researched this episode, the more I understand why America's been fascinated with this guy. I just, I just keep having to reread things, look up other sources to make sure it happened. It all just seems so fucking over the top and outlandish. Like, like most guys have trouble enough wooing one hot girl at a time. This dude had a harem. He's rubbing elbows with record producers and famous musicians. He's living with the Beach Boys. He's recording music. You know, he was driving like Dennis's Rolls Royce around and stuff at this time. All without a high school degree and not even out of prison a year. And he's five foot two and looks completely insane. September 1968. The Beach Boys record Manson's song, Cease to Exist, which Dennis Wilson has revised and retitled Never Learn Not to Love for their next album, 2020. Uh, it comes out in December as a B-side to Bluebirds Over the Mountain, which peaks on the charts as number 61. Manson uh, had to have uh, been stoked to get this recorded, but apparently... He wasn't very happy that Dennis revised the lyrics, revised the music, uh, didn't give him proper writing credit, confronted Dennis. Uh, I guess he wanted to kill Dennis, and Dennis beat the shit out of him. How great is that? Again, talk about flying the wall. To watch one of the Beast Boys, be, Beach, uh, Beast Boys, uh, Beach Boys beat the shit out of uh, Charles Manson. Okay, so so much shit is going to happen in 1969 that we need to exit out of this time suck timeline, lay some groundwork, then uh, take another march through that summer. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Nineteen sixty-nine, the year of Manson. All right, the flower power culture of San Francisco in the mid-late sixties. Man, let's get into it. Hate Ashbury. Let's talk about the summer of love, the infamous summer of love. Uh, okay, so before we again, before we go further. We need to go back to the culture of the Bay Area that Manson moved to when he was released from prison in the spring of 67. Uh, yeah, 1967 is the summer of love. And that summer, uh, roughly like 100,000 young beatniks and hippies, youth disillusioned with Vietnam, they're disillusioned with their parents' rigid ideals of God and country, and they all converge on this Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco to experiment with drugs, experiment with sex. They want to challenge the status quo of the previous generation. They want to redefine themselves. The timing was uncanny. You know, with Manson's release. So he's released into the epicenter of this counterculture revolution where everyone is questioning everything. He's surrounded by tens of thousands of young people looking for something to believe in. People who are also uh, taking a shitload of hallucinogenic drugs. These are people who are extremely curious about religion, spirituality, who are, you know, very open to new ideas uh, and very suspicious of traditional values. You know, they're looking for something new. And Charles Manson was something fucking new. And his followers uh, didn't see him as being uh, institutionalized as a negative. They saw, you know, his backstory as a positive. You know, this, this dude was a victim of an unjust system, a system they wanted to change, and a system that he had refused to let break him. He's kind of a, uh, a counterculture hero, you know? 
And, uh, and he was old enough to be a father figure to these young hippie girls who were estranged from their own fathers for going against their dad's values and their dad's wishes and joining this counterculture revolution. So it was like it was a perfect storm for a fast-talking career criminal, a dude with his own mommy issues that, that drove him to want a new family also. You know, the girls wanted a new dad. He wanted a new family. Uh, and it happened. And so let's get to know this family. This is the Manson family. Uh, let's start with Mary Bruner. First Manson family member, the 23-year-old 23, 23 Berkeley librarian I mentioned earlier, and, uh, and, and again, probably the dad of Valentine Michael, uh, who was known by the family as Pooh Bear. Of course he was. Of course he was. That's what a hippie cult names a baby. Pooh Bear! Okay. Uh, Bruno never uh, served time for involvement in the 1969 killings, but uh, only because she testified against the other family members. But, but a weird thing where she testified against them, but somehow was uh, considered remaining as far as being loyal to them, and... I don't know. It's a whole mess. She was still brainwashed. But in 1971, uh, she and the other family members did uh, steal a bunch of weapons. Uh, they planned to hijack a plane and use it as leverage to get Manson and the other families out of prison. So she does uh, serve some prison a little bit later. Uh, they even have like a shootout with the police. Uh, she spends six years. She's paroled in 77. Squeaky Fromm. Lynette Squeaky Fromm said in an interview, the first thing Charles said to her was, so your dad kicked you out of the house, huh? That's what pulled her in. Someone who understood being abandoned and rejected, and he did understand that. So she was 18 when they met, one of the first members of the family. Uh, always wondered where the name Squeaky came from. I explained earlier, so gross. It's from having sex with a 80-year-old uh, half-blind George Spawn who said that was like the noise they made when he would like pinch her thigh. She would squeak. Blech! Squeaky was fascinated uh, by Manson, the way his mind worked. And uh, she became really well-known after Manson and some of the other family went to jail uh, for the 1969 murders. She was never charged with, with that. Uh, she wasn't uh, active in those killings. But she did try to assassinate President Gerald Ford in 1975 with a Colt 45 pistol. Uh, and this is a little funny side note. During the trial, she also threw an apple at the prosecutor while he was recommending a lengthy prison sentence for her uh, knock the glasses off his face. So, uh, hey, squeaky, nice shot. How fucking cool is that? Uh, she's also currently out of prison. Uh, she was paroled in uh, 2009 at the age of 61. She's living in upstate New York. So Squeaky's up there with her biker boyfriend somewhere up in upstate uh, New York. Patricia Cranwinkle, one of the most active members during the murder spree. Uh, Pat, as they would call her, uh, amongst other things. She was the third girl to join Squeaky and Mary, known already as Charlie's Girls. Uh, that would have made for a very different Charlie's Angel movie. Some kind of mashup between Charlie's Angels and Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. She was 19 when she joined the family. She was mesmerized by Charlie and, quote, made love to him on the first night, crying when he told me I was beautiful. God, he, he knew a mark when he saw one, didn't he? Remember, this dude is a, a former pimp, professional manipulator of women. Uh, check out this quote about Patricia's early life uh, with Charlie and the girls. She says, quote, we were just like wood nymphs and wood creatures. We would w run through the woods with flowers in our hair, and Charles would have a small flute. Ha! <laughs> That is, oh my God, that's like out of like a crazy hippie stereotype fantasy. Like they're out naked in the woods. He's playing a flute. She's telling them their dads don't understand them. They're all fucking, they literally got flowers in their hair, dropping acid. And uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And in less than two years after that, they would transition into carving people up with a knife and writing shit on the walls in their blood. My how things change. So all three of these girls listed so far, Pat, Mary, Squeaky, uh, they're all so beautiful. That's something that makes it more surreal to me. Young, beautiful women, uh, these peace-loving forest nymph hippies that suddenly would turn murderous. Uh, Patricia is still in prison for her role 
1969 murders. Then you got Leslie Van Houten. Van Houten, 19 years old when she met Manson and joined the family in 1968. Along with Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, all three girls are in prison, uh, or in the famous prison photo, uh, which I'll, I'll put on the website, of the three Manson girls on trial in 1970 when they all carve X's in their foreheads to, min- to uh, mimic the X uh, Manson carved into his. Because originally it was like an X, like he was removing himself from society. Yeah, he turned it into a swastika a little later because he's a lunatic. Uh as if he's not a lunatic for carving an X in his head. Leslie was deemed suitable for parole in the early 2016, but uh, her parole was denied, and she's still in prison for the 69 murders. Uh, and this one, she, she's the uh, homecoming princess killer. She went from being a homecoming princess to part of this delusional felon's uh, harem to being arrested for multiple ultraviolet murders in just a couple years. Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins, formerly known as the in, within the family as Sexy Sadie. Charlie would have her work as a stripper. Uh... He, he, Charlie met her at a house party where she was living with some other young hippies when she was 19, late 1967. Within weeks, she'd be living with Charlie, and within months, she'd believe he was Jesus. Yep, he was uh, convincing. She was also uh, um, the one who found the family their home, the Spawn Ranch, which I'll describe in a little more detail soon, convicted of being uh, part of eight different family murders. She died in prison in 2009 from brain cancer. Yeah, and I should add, uh, all the Manson family uh, murder convictions, originally, uh, they were all going to be on death row. They were well, not going to be. They were on death row, but then there was this California uh, changes death penalty um, in 1972. So that's why these people weren't executed, if you're curious. I, I did uh, crack up in doing the research that the first photos that popped up of both Susan and Leslie uh, both had a huge cold source on their lips. So Charlie, he fucked them over in so many ways. I mean, it sent them to prison for the rest of their lives uh, with herpes as a little like icing on the shit cake. Icing on the herp cake. Charles Tex Watson. This is Charlie's right-hand man. Uh, the family had some dudes, too. Uh, uh, and, you know, Char- uh, Tex was one of the first. He was a former honor student and star football player, college frat boy, who threw a promising life away uh, after flying from L.A. to visit a frat brother to check out the psychedelic lifestyle of Hollywood and Venice Beach in the 60s. Uh, and th- this dude would become the main muscle for the 69 murders. He was described as Manson's right-hand man, as I said. Uh, ta- uh, Tex actually... Uh, he met Manson through the Beach Boys when he picked up Dennis Wilson, the co-founder, drummer, backup vocalist, and songwriter, the dude who sung lead on the Beach Boys' 1965 hit Do You Want to Dance, a song that peaked at number 12 on Billboard when he picked him up hitchhiking. He picked that dude up hitchhiking uh, and took him uh, back to Dennis's home where Charlie and some of the family were living for a few months in 1968. Think about how fucking weird that is. What a weird culture at that time in the late 60s you know, in California. Dennis Wilson is hitchhiking and living with the Manson family. This, this is a, a founding member of the Beach Boys. They had put out three albums in 1963 alone that charted in the Billboard Top 10, including Surfing USA. You might have heard of that. Two went gold, one went platinum. Three platinum albums, uh, or sorry, three more gold albums come out in 1964. Two more gold albums in 65. The classic Pet Sounds platinum album, 1966. They released their 14th studio album, 14th in 1968, called Friends. An album that received four out of five stars in Rolling Stone. And now in 1967, 1968, their popularity is declining a little bit as the hippie sounds of the late 60s become more in fad than their kind of pop-driven sounds. But these guys were fucking huge, rich, uh, famous, very rich, very famous. And they're hitchhiking. And they're just hitchhiking around L.A. Strange times, man. That'd be like picking up Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys on Sunset Strip tomorrow and having him just, you know, he's just like, hey, man, do you want to just look? Do you want us to live in my mansion for a couple months? Maybe we could do some sessions. Insane. Okay. So the other family members, 
Um, talk about that real quick. So there's the core group. There's Mary Bruner, Squeaky Fromm, Patricia Cranwinkle, Leslie Van Houten, uh, Disillusioned Young Girls, Susan Atkins. And then we got Tex Watson. Uh, I got pictures of all these on timesuckpodcast.com uh, uh, under the episode uh, description. So all you know, some these, these have some involved. All these people have some involvement in the '69 killings. Um, uh, and then there was others, you know, like Paul Atkins, and I, I don't know. There was like Catherine uh, Gypsy Share. All this crazy stuff. There was this guy, uh, uh, Bobby Boussole, um, a dude who uh, has a website, uh, Bobby uh, Boussole. There, there we go. And that is better maintained than most comics I know, where you can download free tracks. He scored the music to a 1979 film called Lucifer Rising. You can get the album on iTunes. How do people do shit like that? Like they're scoring movies from prison. But all these weirdos were living together in 1969 at the Spawn Ranch. The Spawn Ranch was an old movie set, 500 acres, just north of Malibu where old Western films and episodes like Bonanza, Lone Ranger, Zorro, and stuff were filmed in the early 1900s. And the family kind of, they helped, they would help out the 80-year-old pervert uh, slash dairy farmer, you know, George Spahn, uh, you know, keep up the ranch in, ex- in exchange for letting them live there and, you know, having access to the young women. And and, it, and they turned it, and there was like, you know, footage in this uh, Charlie, Charles Manson documentary from the Spahn Ranch, you know, they're living on this beatnik paradise. They're playing music, they're partying, they're having orgies. Uh, they're also hiding stolen cars and shit like that that paid for their lifestyle. I mean, you know, Charles is a thief. And, uh, yeah, so that's the scene. Party, music ambitions, parental and social disillusionment. Young girls looking for someone to love them. Young dudes looking for a good time and young girls to make love too. A lot of drugs. And a charismatic pimp running the whole show. A master manipulator who got his followers away from society, got them to let go of all their old beliefs through LSD experimentation, through constant fantasy. He created blank canvases out of these young hippies you know, broke them down, and then started to paint his own vision upon them. His helter-skelter philosophy, which I'm going to explain later, is the fucking best part of this episode. God damn, I didn't know how crazy it was. Uh, initially at the ranch, it was all fun and games with, you know, Manson, but then, uh, you know, it got darker as time went on because he's a dark soul, man. Remember his childhood. Remember all the incarceration. And so, like, the longer they were on the ranch, the darker he became, and the fun and games gave, you know, way to questioning right and wrong, to questioning life and death. He was brainwashing these people. And he went from people who would follow him for adventure and a good time to people who would kill for him. So let's get into the murders. Uh, Time for another Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. March 1969. Manson's pissed that he hasn't become a huge rock and roll star. He wanted to be a huge, like the Beatles huge. He had met big-time record producer Terry Melcher, and Melcher even auditioned him for a possible recording contract, possible documentary about his music and the family, but basically he came to think of Manson as violent and insane after watching him get in a fight at Spawn Ranch with the ranch hand and ever hearing about him fight, you know, Dennis, Will and the, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. He finds Manson uh, to be what he is, mentally unstable. Good fucking call. They sever ties. But Manson thinks he knows where the dude uh, lives. He's been to the guy's house a place uh, where he was living with Candace Bergen uh, when they met, the actress who would go on to play Murphy Brown. So Manson goes to Melcher's house on Cielo Drive, unaware that Melcher has already moved out, and he shows up in the middle of a party given by one of the new residents, Sharon Tate. Very bad twist of fate for her. July 1969. Money from a music career is not coming in, and Manson's getting desperate for cash to keep his family interested in sticking around. Along with Tex Watson, he sets up a, quote, drug burn. Uh, making a deal to sell 25 kilos of pot that he doesn't have, hustling $2,500 out of a black drug dealer named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. What a great nickname. Uh, Watson takes the money, 
runs, and when Crow demands his money back, Manson arranges a meeting at Crow's apartment and then shoots Lots of Papa in the chest. The violence has begun. Fortunately, Lots of Papa lives. What if you, you can't you can't kill Lots of Papa with one shot? Man, it's too much Papa. You gotta you gotta you know you gotta shoot Lots of Papa. I don't know, 15, 20 times, man. You, you gotta kill all the Papa. There's so much. I just pictured uh, that guy. I haven't looked at a picture up, but I pictured Lots of Papa uh, as a dude who wore a lot of fur hats. Instead, jive turkey a whole bunch. Okay, so, uh, and that comes into, uh, this This gets, uh, by the way, Manson really paranoid. After he, he shoots this guy and thinks he kills him, he, he uh, thinks that this guy is a member of the Black Panther movement, and he, and he becomes convinced that, like, that angry black men are going to kill him for that. This feeds his helter-skelter vision later. July 25th, 1969, Bobby Busole, the fucking guy with a website from prison right now, scoring films. A friend of Charlie's, uh, current, you know, again, prison musician, gets burned in another drug deal gone bad, this one involving Gary Hinman and a biker gang, the Straight the straight Satans. What a fucking name that is. Why would you ever fuck with the Straight Satans? Burned for a thousand... That's just like a death wish. Oh, my God. Burned for a thousand dollars. Busolet uh, goes to Hinman's home with a handgun, a knife, and a few family accomplices. Uh, Tex, Bruner, Bruce Davis, Manson. I guess Manson cuts off Hinman, uh, Hinman's ear... After Busolet shoots him dead, Atkins writes political piggy on a wall in Hinsman, Hinman's blood. Shit's escalating, man. <laughs> They're cutting up uh, members of the straight Satans. Sunday, August 9th, 1969, the Tate murders at Cielo Drive. Under the orders of Charles Manson, Tex Watson, along with Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkle, and another Manson family member, Linda Caspian, who would later avoid prison time by being a key witness for the state prosecution, invaded the home of Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, director-slash-pedophile. Uh, Polanski uh, was uh, away in London filming, probably fucking diddling kids. Date was home with some, uh, Tate was home with some friends. Manson had told the four uh, family members to destroy the house and everyone in it, as gruesomely as you can, as a message to producer Terry Melcher, who he believed owned the home. This guy is not taking rejection in the music business well at all. Tate was eight and a half months pregnant at the time, just returned home from a late dinner at El Coyote, a popular uh, little uh, restaurant spot in L.A. with three friends, her former lover and hairstylist Jay Sebring, the man who first, uh, he was the guy who first actually introduced martial artist Bruce Lee to the acting world, and just people, everybody was connected in L.A. at the time. Uh, Wycheck Frykowski, an aspiring Polish screenwriter friend of, of Romans with a fucking crazy Polish name. Frykowski's lover, Abigail Folger, Heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune. More than waking up. There's yeah, some kind of bullshit jingle. Folger. More uh, I'm getting Folger's uh little jingle confused in my in my brain with uh for some reason the uh, G.I. Joe. More than meets the eye. Nah, I don't know. Anyway, she was a big deal. This is before Starbucks came, a lot of people were into Folgers. Very wealthy young lady. Around midnight, Tex climbs at a telephone pole, cuts off phone access to the home. Then the four family members climb over a bushy embankment. Tex jumps over first, uh, over the gate, under the grounds of the home. Uh, 18-year-old student Stephen Parent drives up to the gate to leave. He'd been visiting the caretaker, a friend of his, sees the Manson family, sees Tex. Tex shoots him four times in the chest for being in the wrong place at the wrong fucking time. Tex, Tex then sneaks into the house after midnight, cuts through uh, an open window screen, quite lets in two other family members, Susan and Patricia, through the front door. Linda stays outside, acts as a lookout. Frykowski had been asleep on the couch, wakes up, and is kicked in the head by Tex, who tells him, quote, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Wow. To say that, I mean, you're going to kill somebody, you're going to break it down, kill, but then also, do you, 
Do you fucking need to say that to him? Jesus, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. You know that guy had a lot of drugs in his system. When he's saying that, that's, that's, that's some cocaine. That's the cocaine talking. <laughs> I don't even, I don't know. In my reason, I didn't come across them doing coke, but I feel like that's, I don't feel like you say that sober. I feel like yeah, that's, that is uh, literally like 100% coke speaking right there. I'm the devil, and I came here to do the devil's business. Susan and Patricia, and they did. Susan and Patricia uh, find the other three occupants, round them up into the living room. Jay Sebring tells uh, Tex and the others to take it easy on Sharon, who's pregnant. And for sticking his neck out, Tex stabs him and shoots him in the face, and all hell breaks loose. Frykowski runs out the door to escape, but he's shot twice by Tex Watson in the back, pounced on, stabbed, check this out, a total of 51 times. 51 times by Susan Atkins. That's way too much stabbing. Folger ran out the back door, is run down by Patricia Cranwinkle, who stabs her 28 times. Very stab-happy, the Manson family. During the stabbing, apparently uh, uh, the, uh, the victim, Folger, uh, did not cry uh, out, um, you know, have a good morning with Folger, or whatever the jingle was. Uh, Stop, I'm already dead. Which, thank God they didn't use that for the jingle. I know that's very fucked up for me to say. Folger, stop, I'm already dead. Like, I feel kind of guilty saying that, actually. Uh, back in the house, Sharon Tate pleads to be allowed to live save her baby, but the killers have none of it. Man, this is the devil. They're doing the devil's business. Susan and Tex stab Tate 16 times, five of the wounds fatal in and of themselves, according to the coroner's report. Baby does not survive. Before leaving, the family writes pig on the walls in Tate's blood. Monday, August 10th, 1969, the LaBianca murders at Waverly Drive. Very next night, Manson joins the family on the hunt. For some reason, he didn't feel like Tex and the others had inspired enough terror the night before. All the devil talk and writing on blood, you know, it was just, he was taking it easy on him. And uh, when I explain the true reason for the killings in a little bit, uh, little bit you're going to understand that Manson is, he is stark, raving mad at this point. He is, he's, he's insane, he's disillusioned by his music career, and he, he's full fucking maniac moat. And uh, all his followers have lost any sense of reality whatsoever. So they, they drive around the Los Feliz, Silver Lake area of L.A., essentially looking for some pigs uh, who deserve it in their mind, and end up, and not by, that's not a slang for police, that's just in their mind, like, people who are part of the problem, pigs. And they end up in a neighborhood where they had been uh, to a party the year before. They arrive at the house of a successful grocery company owner, Leno LaBianca, and his wife, Rosemary. And that night, really fucking sucked to be them. Testimony varied from the family members regarding what actually took place that night, but we do know uh, these two, these, this couple was initially tied up, they were robbed. Watson then left the home after instructing, uh, or I'm sorry, not what, Manson le- then left the home after instructing others to kill the couple. And then it looks like Tex Watson started stabbing Leno. Rosemary tries to escape in the melee. Leslie Van Houten starts stabbing Rosemary, is helped by Patricia Cranewinkle, whose arm apparently wasn't too tired from all of the stabbing she did the night before. Um, this lady must have been struggling viciously because the two people, two women stabbing her, it wasn't enough to kind of keep her under control. So Tex, uh, him and his strong, strong stabbing hand, uh, they help out. Rosemary ends up getting stabbed a total of 41 times. You know, they loved overkill. Um, literally. After she'd been thoroughly stabbed, Tex uh, returns to stab Leno some more. They fucking couldn't get enough of the goddamn stabbing. Total of 26 times. Must have been, uh, uh, you know, less because of fatigue. You know, maybe, I guess he was tired at that point from all the rosemary stabs. He does work up the energy to carve the word war into the dude's stomach. Uh, Apparently he's an artist of sorts now, and murder is his medium. These guys are fucked up. The gang gets a little more creative uh, with the blood writings this time. They write death to pigs, uh, rise, uh, a misspelled helter-skelter on the fridge. You know, uh, no one's accusing them of being geniuses. And then they take back off to Spawn Ranch. And with that, 
uh, we conclude the second of two Time Suck timelines. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Okay, so when it was all said and done, Manson, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel found guilty for seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Leslie Van Houten charged with two counts of murder, one count of conspiracy for her role in the LaBianca killings. Cassabian, in exchange for immunity, testifies for the prosecution to explain the events that occurred during each vicious crime. Uh, now, before I get into why they did this, I would like to mention that there was a few other random murders associated with the family, uh, but nothing is calculated and as gruesome as what we've covered. Okay, so why did they do it? Holy shit. This is what I really didn't know about Manson. This is fucking so insane. They did it because of Manson's helter-skelter vision. Manson, uh, through his own interpretations uh, of uh, some revelations, stuff from the Bible, and what he thought were messages coming from the Beatles from their Helter Skelter uh, song especially, he thought a race war was about to break out between whites and blacks. Yes, you heard that right. And he started talking about that uh, on New Year's Eve 1968 to his family. That's when he started getting real frustrated, shit started getting real dark and even weirder than it already was. And by 1969, by the summer, he had really kind of formulated his idea of Helter Skelter into this really unique and insane vision. He He thought it was his destiny to create an album of music with his family with hidden messages in the music that would inspire people to start a race war and also to come kind of hide with him, which I'm going to explain. Uh, he, he, yeah, he thought young white hippies would hear these messages, join the family, uh, mostly young, white, hot female hippies. Um, and then the young militant black men uh, denied enough young, white, hippie, hot women who they'd just begun to get a taste of you know, with the, with the, uh, the recent changes uh, as far as blacks dating uh, white people more, they would be so fucking pissed off that, that he was hiding some of these white women from him that they would start killing whites. They would be, get into a murderous, horny rage. And it gets even better. Uh, the blacks would then proceed to kill all of the whites, all of them in the world, with the exception of Mancy, Manson and his new expanded family. Why weren't they killed? Oh, this is the best part. Because they were going to retreat into a secret city hidden beneath Death Valley, California, that awaited them. Manson had figured out the location through, again, his interpretation of Revelations. And they would just stay down there. They would stay down there, let the black people kill all the remaining white people, all part of the establishment anyway, you know, all fucking pigs. And then Manson, he thought that once the above-ground whites were all killed by the uh, uh, blacks, that the black people would be unable to properly manage their new world. They wouldn't be able to be like, you know, uh, uh, they didn't have the resources to figure out how to kind of run things. And then, oh, hocus pocus, the Manson family comes up from their underground uh, fucking Death Valley city. And the blacks would allow them to be like, thank God you guys are here because we don't know how to run shit. Please let us run it. Or you guys can run it. And then Manson says regarding this, and I apologize for the language, but this is a direct quote. Then we would go scratch his fuzzy head and kick him in the butt and tell him to go pick the cotton and be a good nigger. Oh, my God. What the fuck? How much acid do you have to take to make any of this sound like a remotely good idea? Think about that. They're on the ranch. And, and these hippies and Manson's like, yeah. And then, you know, we'll fucking hide. And we wait. And the music gets out. And then the war starts. And then he gets, you know, he's just so deluded and racist and crazy. And they went along with this. Oh, wow. And there's pages of pages uh, of Manson's interpretations of Beatles lyrics and his interpretations of Revelations, by the way. Way too much to get into this already lengthy episode. And again, I apologize for even uh, saying that. Where I, I just feel like I hate it when it's like I'm reading a quote 
and then I hide the word. It's like you, you're going to add the word in your head. Uh, okay. And so that's why none of the people convicted of the Tate and LaBianca murders uh, have ever gotten out of parole. I used to wonder, like, well, why are they still in prison? Because it was so, so brutal and so insane. It's like when you kill people thinking that you're going to start a race war that you will hide from in an underground city, you don't get to, you don't, you don't get to ever come out of prison again. You don't get to ever come out. You are always a risk to society at that point, forever and always. Oh, man. And I wonder how many casual, like, uh, kind of hippie, you know, followers left the Spawn Ranch in 69. I bet they, they came there for the orgies and stuff, you know. There had to been a lot of, and, and then when shit started getting into the Helter Skelter vision, they had to jet, you know, just conversations. Like, hey, man, this is fun orgy last night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, the, what was up with that Helter Skelter shit? I don't know. Yeah, he kind of lost me. We started talking about the underground city, you know. Uh, why would they agree to be slaves again after proving they could kill way more white people? Uh, than, than the amount of us that would come out of hiding. It just, I don't know. Let's just, let's just get out of here. Hey, Charlie, yay, great party, bud. Love the Helter Skelter shit, dude. Fuck, you fucking get it. Ah, I always thought that Beatles song was a little more than meets the eye. <laughs> sure, I'd love some more acid. Weird times, man. Weird times. I had no idea how weird it was. Oh, let's get into some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. Manson's pimp game was and is stronger than yours. Since the time he got out of jail at 21, he's either been incarcerated or having sex with a variety of young women. There are young women who still want Charles Manson inside of them today. Attractive women. One is Elaine Burton. Uh, I'll have a picture of her uh, on the website, too. A woman who started communicating with him when she came across some of his writings about the environment when she was 17. She immediately saved up money, moved to California so she could visit him in prison, and tried marrying him at the age of 24. This is recently. She's actually kind of hot. How much does that suck for the 25-year-old dude who can't get any women to date him, let alone uh, be in a relationship with him, you know, with Charles Manson, as crazy as he looks now, and with everything he's done, somehow still getting girls, even though he's incarcerated. Okay. Number two, the Beach Boys recorded a Manson song. Also, years later on the album, The Spaghetti Incident, that's what I was talking about earlier, Guns N' Roses recorded another Manson song. Yep, look at your game, girl. Not easy to walk the murderous cult leader slash folk singer, songwriter tightrope, but Manson briefly pulled it off. And again, you should check out some of his tunes, uh, just out of curiosity on either YouTube or Spotify. It's worth a listen, and they're like, uh, not as bad as I thought they were going to be. You'll hear one at the end. Number three, the best way not to raise another Charles Manson is to not bring a kid into the world with no father and be a prostitute mother who abandons her child after returning from prison until he's an adult and the damage is done. So parents, all parents, make sure your kids know about birth control before they become sexually active. Number four, don't pick up hitchhikers. Don't pick him up, ever. A lot of this shit would have never happened if Dennis Wilson hadn't picked up a couple Manson family hitchhikers in 1968, and if Tex Watson hadn't picked up a hitchhiking Dennis Wilson so weird a little after that. Number five. Manson believed that he could write and record an album that would ignite a race war that he would then hide from in an underground city only to emerge with thousands of beautiful white hippie women and then rule over black people who had just got done killing all the other white people and got other people to believe this shit too. In a weird way, nothing makes me want to get in a time machine and visit the late 60s California more than that fact. Holy shit. The times were wild and the drugs must have been incredible. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right. So there you go. There you go. That's Manson, man. When I watch interviews with this dude, I don't like him. I don't respect him. You know, at all, of course, he was a monster. But I also, it's weird. I don't despise him like I despise Ted Bundy, for example. He doesn't seem evil in the same way Bundy did. Maybe that's, you know, just the power of his charisma in a weird way. Bundy seemed like, you know, evil incarnate, just cold and calculating. Manson seems just like broken and confused. You almost pity him somehow. 
You know, like Bundy, his dad was never in the picture, but unlike Bundy, you know, he had much less childhood stability. Mom went to prison for a five-year stretch, you know, worked as a prostitute off and on, pawned him off on relatives, put him in all boys, lived in school, rejected his pleas to live with their foster care, all that stuff. He's getting raped and beat, you know, in some of the places he's at. Had a hard childhood by any standard. He said something in a Diane Sawyer interview that actually really stuck to me. He said, the only thing my mother taught me was that everything she said was a lie, and I learned never to believe anyone about anything. Man, there's the seed. Clearly a deep mistrust of authority and a hatred women were woven into the identity-forming period of his childhood. By the time he was an adult, this little guy, five foot two, clearly no more than about 110, 120 pounds, had to survive in prison. Had to learn how to manipulate bigger, stronger inmates in order to survive. Had to think fast. And then you throw that shit out into the epicenter of the counterculture revolution in 1967, the summer of love. Something weird was bound to happen, and it surely did. Manson, you know, he was something America hadn't seen before. He wasn't going to kidnap and kill your daughter. It was almost worse. He was going to kill America's young daughters in a different way. He was going to convince them to kill on his behalf. Somehow that's scarier, man. Oh, and Helter Skelter, man. Helter Skelter. What the fuck? Well, some kind of Helter Skelter is coming for you, Charlie. You, you are not much long uh, for this world. You're sick in prison after reading all this, man. I hope for a variety of reasons that you just get it over with and die. And with that, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for the wonderful emails and iTunes reviews. I read every one. Uh, it helps a lot. The more people that listen to this, the more time I can justify spending on it. And I love doing this. I love it. I want to just keep getting better and better. Just build this and see where the fuck it takes all of us. This crazy path of curiosity we're on. Thanks for, so thanks for continuing to spread the word. Uh, and the last review I saw actually mentioned flat earth theory. And I've gotten numerous emails about flat earth theory before. So that is next week's topic. So uh, if you have any respect for science, you will really get a kick out of me making fun of these kooks, I hope. Hilariously uninformed and childless in their explanation of how the world is indeed totally flat. Just a, just a frisbee hanging out in space. And again, photos of the major players uh, from this episode are posted under the episode description at timesuckpodcast.com. And it's only fitting that Charles Manson himself take us out of this episode with little late 60s, Maybe a little Dennis Wilson influenced. Look at your game, girl. There's a time for living. The time keeps on flying. Think you're loving, baby, and all you do is crying. Can you feel? Ah, those feelings real. Look at your game, girl. Frustration and doubt Can you ever live without the game? Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next week on another Time Suck. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.